Okay, Tyler, we were um, originally for a while talking about um, computers and mentioning the point about um, when computers were in their infancy, that it was very, very rule-based, rule-oriented um, instructions, one instruction after the other, and complex instruction sets with algorithms, step-by-step -step sequence of events, set of instructions, to where the most modern computers have to do then with AI, which means that they're data and result-oriented, not process-oriented. But the data comes in, and the data then is um, analyzed by uh, the complex uh, machines that we were based that were based on graphic processors. That's also what we're talking about that happens with the human, especially let us call him the Dama dude. We start off in childhood learning all of the rules and learning how to follow the rules so that we can get the results that we're looking for. And then we begin to see that the Dhamma is different than that. The Dhamma is actually much more modern, even though the Buddha did it 2,500 years ago, in the sense of coming out of the rules and coming into the reality of what's happening right now, which means now we're going to be more data-driven. And this actually comes right into the practice you're mentioning here in the sense of uh, this is very common for for students uh, in the beginning. I would say that we all do it, that when we start practicing meditation, we still are practicing it rule based. This is why you see in Western Buddhism so much about attainment this and oh, there's that and I've got to go get that. Sotapan, Arahat, um, past life experiences, jhanas, all of this kind of stuff comes out of the mind that is uh, oriented towards uh, attainments and uh, following the rules, uh, doing the algorithms and getting the results. And so when we're practicing, we practice in the sense of comparing how we're doing right now with the set of rules that we have made up. That comparison with the rules that we've made up is actually a way of thinking of, uh, and using language like critical thinking. That we just don't accept that. In fact, that's how we built our society is with critical thinking by um, judging everything according to some set of standards. And so here the meditator is sitting down and doing his thing, but he's always judging it according to a set of standards. And that set of standards can be, let us say, kind of new information that he's heard from some guru or read in some book, or it can be very old stuff way back into childhood. But basically we're looking at it from uh, from the sense from the Buddha is, is that this comparison to the set of rules and setting standards for our behavior is actually uh, unwholesome thought. It's unwholesome for us to do that because we are never going to match up 
to the rules that we can create. In other words, um, oh, there was an old joke in uh, when I was a child uh, in in the church. Uh, the question is, can God make a rock so big and so heavy that he himself can't pick it up? Another example of that is what happens when an irresistible force meets an unmovable object? Right? You see where this is going. That's that comparison to the ultimate is when you have an irresistible force and you're now comparing that to an immovable light. Guess what? There's no such thing as an irresistible force and there's no such thing as an immovable object. Name me an object that doesn't move. Can't do it. Can't do it. Okay, so that, but I'll tell you where it exists. It exists in the minds of humans. But not in reality. It exists as a rule. You can write that rule down on paper. One human can tell another person or another human about the quandary of an irresistible um, object uh, force and an, un and an unmovable object, but it doesn't really exist except in the human mind. And basically, we can look at that also in a sense of time frame so that an, uh, an, an irresistible force may be resisted for a while and then give in. Or the other possibility is, is that the object that, uh, that is being forced to move eventually gives way. And this is how we need to practice with our own meditation in the sense that if we keep applying this stuff over and over and over again, it will make some change, but it doesn't happen immediately. Okay, why is that? It's because we're actually coming out of the way that we process. Coming out of the rule based or the critical thinking into what we would call nurturing thinking. And that nurturing is also just kind of letting whatever is come in without judging it. And we can also, without the judgment and letting it come in, we can actually appreciate it. So this is what we mean by nurturing, that a, a tender infant, when it is first born, is taken care of and nurtured. We all got nurturing when we were little. But something happened around the age of six or seven. Many people think that it's seven, other people say it's six. Basically, it's an age range, and it can happen depending upon the circumstances as early as four years old and as, and as late as eight or nine. When it's really, really early, that generally is what happens is, is that mommy has the second baby. And the four-year-old now, which used to be the baby in the family, now has to become mama's little helper. And he don't like that a bit. He was the star of the show, and now he is a bit player. And so um, this whole thing then that happens when we're, when we're kids is we've got to learn to go along, to get along. We've got to learn the rules of how to operate. And that when we then become a meditation practitioner, we bring that set of rules in 
to judge our meditation. Which is exactly what you were talking about doing. Judging your meditation rather than enjoying your meditation. To nurture the baby without expectations of any outcome of the baby. Just love the baby. To nurture yourself, okay? That it's almost like that we all have a very primitive part of us that can be thought of in, in psychological uh, expressions as a child. And that we go around with a, a critical parent being critical of that child, and the child then winds up being afraid, annoyed, unhappy, and it's all because of the instructions that the parent is giving. Go do this, go pick up your clothes, do your room, do your homework, learn your ABCs is how we heard it as children. And to now when we're adults, for the meditator is, pay attention. You miss, you're not watching your mind. The breath is gone. Your mind has wandered away. You'll never learn this. You're a terrible meditator. These are the kind of thoughts that people will have because they're doing their practice of meditation through that same old critical rule-based system rather than the way that AI would work in the sense of, ah, look at this. Oh, I see that. Look at what's going on here. Okay. Now, this whole process, basically, is the, when when they talk about insight meditation and all of that kind of other stuff, what we're really talking about is a skill that's being developed, and that skill to be developed is to see dukkha as dukkha as soon as we can, because the later, longer it takes to see dukkha, the more effective that dukkha is going to be in being dukkha. And so quit catching it fast and throwing it out fast is the is the best way to go but what happens is is that dukkha comes in and then the critical parent will say oh no there's dukkha here there's dukkha you've got a big problem here how come you let that dukkha in and so we start complaining about the dukkha not recognizing that now we've got two dukkhas going on the <laughs> first that happened and then the second one is the big complaining about it and I use that example in the sense of when Goenka says, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. He's saying it in a very easy, nurturing way. Never mind, the mind wandered away. That's what the mind does. Congratulate yourself for seeing that the mind wandered away. But the beginners in meditation will say, ah, the mind wandered away. Oh, no. Oh, this <laughs> meditation is so difficult. Oh, I don't get it right. Okay, you're <laughs> laughing because I think you know that this is the kind of thoughts that you've had sometimes. <laughs> yeah. That's because we're still in that rule-based system and that it is a major, major uh, um, habit that we have built up over time. Um, and that as, as a mode of clinging, the Buddha talks about this, the Pali word for it is sila bhata paramasa. And what that means is that we cling to a set of rules. 
that when we were little, when we didn't follow the rules, we got punished. And because of that, we want to make sure that we're following the rules. And so we grow up like that, being rule followers, and computer scientists wind up being the world's experts at rule following. Because we've got that, that computer, that base, and so we know exactly what's, what's going on with that, and so we can test our rules directly. Because we keep getting the same results over and over again when we do the same thing, that's fairly easy to see. But in one's own mind, uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting new results is common in human behavior. In fact, I've heard that Einstein calls that insanity, is doing the same thing over and over again, keep getting the same results, which is what you would expect. But we don't. We expect that something different is going to happen because after all we've been told you got to follow the rules. If you keep following the rules and get it followed exactly right, then you'll get the outcome that you're wanting. Instead of recognizing that, oh no, let us look at the input. Let's look at what we're doing. Let's stop trying to follow the rules and start looking at what's really going on. And what's really going on is that voice inside saying, aha, you're not following the rules. <coughs> and the answer to that is, yeah, isn't that marvelous? <laughs> that we don't have to follow the rules. That we can just relax and enjoy. And this is kind of a change. It's, it's, um, it's revolutionary inside of each one's mind just like AI is a revolutionary new way of computing versus the old complex instruction set computers that were completely rule-based. So now we're going to come out of the rules and just start enjoying the input. So, so sometimes I, I, I struggle because I'm like, well, I, and I try to relax, but then I'm like, am I, am I too relaxed? Like, am I relaxed to the point where unwholesome states are coming in and, uh, and I'm just not being, you know, aware, I'm not, I'm not being putting enough, you know, attention on, onto that. And so I'm having to think, sometimes I distinguish in between like being relaxed and then like being not mindful, if that makes sense. Well, if we're going to use the word mindful, um, we perhaps should give it a, a clear definition of exactly what we mean by mindful. Uh, I think it's got a kind of a sloppy, wishy-washy kind of, you know, whoever's teaching meditation has a different view of what mindfulness is. But the Buddha was actually quite clear about it in the sense that mindfulness then can be a combination of things. Even though in uh, normal ways of understanding Buddhism from the Western mentality, mindfulness directly translates into the Pali word sati. Except that the word sati in Pali is much, much more complex and nuanced than merely mindfulness. Plus, also mindfulness has other qualities that are not actually sati. And so mindfulness is not a good fit for sati. Uh, but 
Western Buddhism seems to have gotten uh, strongly attached to that word <laughs> as if it were some sort of rule or something. So let's look at sati and, and um, investigation together would be mindfulness in the sense that to wake up and to pay attention or to look at really what's going on, which means to actually be, get into our sensory input as opposed to uh, the internal parts of the mind. You know that uh, in Buddhism that they talk about it, that there are six senses, not five, but six, okay? One of the things that we fail to understand is that sixth sense, the mind, a lot of people think of it, oh, that's what needs to be developed. And the answer is no, that's the sense that we spend far too much time in. Because that's where all the rules are. The rules and all the rule-based stuff is in the mind. The reality is in all the other senses because they're happening right here, right now. Data input. This is what we're looking at then uh, as what we're going to be mindful of is what's happening right now. So sati can then be understood to be to wake up in the sense of coming out of the mental dreaming state of the mind, thinking about something and actually observing it. That's the, uh, the change then is coming out of the sensory awareness of the one sense of the mind and coming into the reality of the situation that can be seen in the senses. This is why Anapanasati or the breathing is such a valuable tool because when we're watching the breath, you can't watch last year's breath. The only breath that you can watch is the one that you're having right here, right now, in this present moment. And if you're observing it well, that means that you're understanding it from the perspective of the movement of the body, the touch of the skin, on the cloth of the shirt, the air that surrounds, and all of the other sensory input that comes just with the breathing. That when you get as still as you can in the meditation hall or whatever, you don't move anything, you're still breathing, which means that the body is actually, even in its most still state, is completely active. And that we can start to observe that, how active the body actually is with each in-breath and with each out-breath, as well as to begin to control that mind, to direct it, rather than it just jumping from one rule to the next rule to the next rule, which would then be considered the monkey mind. And by the way, one of the reasons why the mind is restless and jumps around is because wherever the mind lands, that's still not a comfortable place. And so the mind jumps again, looking for a comfortable place to land, and it never lands in a comfortable place. It always keeps jumping and jumping and jumping. So what we need to do is to set it up so that when the mind lands someplace, it lands in a place that's satisfying 
comfortable and then the mind is more likely going to stay there. But if the mind is uncomfortable, then it will become restless. And so mindfulness then, if we're going to use that word, mindfulness is, is, to, is to see what's the difference between what's comfortable, satisfactory, secure, and safe versus that which is not. And all the rules that we've been given is keeping us unsafe. Especially when we are comparing how is my meditation in that critical way, rather than looking at it from an investigative perspective. In other words, really looking at it, how is it, how is it is as it is now, without comparing that to something else, something better. <coughs> it's often the case that students will have, let us say, um, a wow experience in meditation. And then the next time they go back to meditation, now they're trying to recreate that wow experience. But they're comparing what they're doing now with what happened back then, and it's not ever going to be the same. And so the student is going to wind up being disappointed when he's comparing it. A much better way was, would be to say, wow, I felt really good back then. I could feel really good right now without comparing or matching it to just allow that me right now can feel really good. That I can be satisfied now. So this is what we then mean by mindfulness or the investigation is literally to see that which is keeping us uncomfortable and throw that out so that we can maintain our comfort. And so comparing what we're doing in our meditation now with something that we've done in the past is dukkha. Keeping us unsatisfied. Rather than I don't have to worry about how satisfied or unsatisfied I was last time. Right now, this is nice. And we stop comparing. We stop doing that um, um, uh, rule-based following of how it should be. And instead, just enjoy the sensory experience that you have now. To come into the senses and to um, experience the input, because guess what? The human body cannot, under any circumstances, with the eyes, the ears, the touch, and all of that, receive all of the data that's possibly coming in. But our eyes have a very, very narrow window um, of just kind of like one octave. Just, just one octave from the red up to the ultraviolet to where um, many different animals can see way beyond us. That, that they're, see, they're understanding that some deep sea creatures can see well below the infrared, but we always have known that bees, for instance, have ultraviolet vision where they can see whether a flower has been uh, uh, nectared out from a distance to where a human would have to have a microscope to test to see if that flower had the nectar removed. Why is that? Because our eyes are not very good. 
So when we understand that not only is the amount of sensory input that we're receiving um, is not the full spectrum of what's going on, a more important point is, is that that which is going on and can be received is humongous. It is vast. But that we don't see it like that because the way that we process things is that we see something and then we have um, <clears throat> a processing going on, which we will call perception. And that perception then comes up with an internal representation. That internal representation is that which then impacts us. So that <clears throat> what we actually see and what we actually get on the inside is often different because it's gone through this per process of perception, which may or may not have some rules built into it. In other words, I see green, <clears throat> but I perceive something that's not green enough. <clears throat> this is um, the process of the mind, and when we understand that we don't live in, a, in actual reality, we live in a perceived reality that had to be processed. And during the processing time and the being impacted with the internal vision, is all mind moments of time that we could have been spending actually receiving new input data. And so we see, we process, we think about it, we figure out what it is, then we react to it. And during that time of all that processing, we could have been seeing the fact that it was changing and it was changing and it was changing and it was changing. So the processing that we were doing is already old data that we're processing. We're not processing new data. We're processing old stuff. I've had, this, uh, I've had this interesting experience happen to me a bunch of times the last week and where especially I'll be like washing my hands or taking a shower and I'll uh, I'll notice like you know a hindrance and I'll um, I'll like kind of relax, glide in the mind, and then I'll notice I'll no immediately notice like a smell, like a weird like a smell I had never noticed before. Uh, I had like blocked out of my mind because I was like so deep in thought, and so I just like all these new sensations start like appearing right <laughs> right when I'm like able to like pop out of my uh, you know mind. Mm-hmm. That's that's then a lot to do with mindfulness is that we have to put the mind in in the correct input method in order to be able to be mindful of that input. The, the sati is actually the changing of the guard or the changing of the switch or the waking up out of the mental state into the reality of it so that then we can do the investigation. And that investigation then is the investigation of what's real. And so uh, this is actually a, a big part of the process of how can we continue to, to keep coming out of the, the mental world that we live in into the actual real world we have to practice that over and over and over again because we have been kind of uh, 
voluntarily locked ourselves into a cage of rules. What we talk about uh, thinking outside the box is basically just dropping the rules and looking at what's reality. But the fact is that that box doesn't exist other than as a mental concept of rules. Oh, that's a boundary. You can't cross that. But there is actually no physical boundary there. There's no real boundary. And so people who think out of the box, you're not thinking outside of a box. The box was constructed by other people thinking that those rules are there and that they want this other guy who's thinking outside the box to stop doing that and start following their rules. <laughs> and the fact is that there's no box there. The box is completely imaginary. And it's a set of rules. And when we stop that and wake up in this moment and investigate, we come into sensory awareness. And there we can find all kinds of things. Right. You'd be surprised at what a bathroom actually smells like. <laughs> because we're not paying attention to it. In fact, that's almost a sense that humans have lost. We've almost lost the sense of smell. To where with dogs, smell is a major part of their input. Did everything you, you've seen that uh, you, you show a dog something. He didn't want to look at it. He wants to smell it. <laughs> they get all of their data that way. So um, humans have kind of lost that, that sense of, of odor. And it is good for us to practice to bring that back. That in fact, that's part of the breathing. To take that long, deep in breath is to actually get a load of the air that's coming in. Experience that air. That air is life-giving. When we think normally of breathing, all we think of in the sense of uh, meditation is just the rising and the falling of the body itself without recognizing that, hey, there is a tremendous amount of chemical reactions going on here. And when that air comes in, it's life-giving. That it's life itself. That if you don't believe me, Stop breathing and see what happens. Or another way of looking at it that I tell the students is that um, uh, if you if you don't really um, see what how marvelous it is to breathe, what a what an absolutely extraordinarily wonderful thing it is. If you don't think so, then stop breathing for a while, like three, four, five minutes. And then take that in breath and see how you like it. That we only don't, <clears throat> we don't appreciate the breath because first off, we're not paying any attention to it. And it's almost like on an automatic pilot. But when we incorporate the breathing into the practice, that means that we are actually learning to control the mind by controlling the breath. We actually have to learn to control the breath that many meditation practices say uh, to just watch the breath. 
But if you're just watching the breath, then the mind can run away easily because, I mean, the mind's got no skin in the game. It's just kind of watching. It's very much like a spectator sport. That sometimes you, uh, as a spectator, it's easy to get distracted. Oh, let's go get popcorn. Right? But if you're out on the field playing, you don't have time for popcorn. You're playing the game. You're in it. So this is also the way that we are going to practice the meditation is that we got to put some skin in the game. Have to take control. Um, another example is a video game. You can there's two ways to play a video game. One is to watch somebody else play the game. They seem to have a lot of that on YouTube and whatnot of watching somebody <laughs> else play a video game as opposed <laughs> to playing the video game yourself. OK, there's a big difference. If you've got your the hand on the mouse and you're doing the movements, you're going to learn a whole lot more. But if you just watch somebody else playing the game, it's easy just to get distracted. You're not really watching what's going on. You might be able to see one thing, but you don't see this, that, and the other thing because you're not really paying attention. But if you're playing the game, then you're really going to be paying attention to it. This is a, a quality of human existence that we need to apply to our practice of meditation, of really getting in there and controlling the breath, taking uh, control, seizing it, because this is where the confidence is going to grow. Also, we can think of it like this, that we, uh, the sutta talks about mindfulness on the in-breath and mindfulness on the long out-breath. Now, what that means is it's not just noticing, it's not that kind of mindfulness, but rather it's mindful to make this a long breath. The control is part of that sati. So it's not just mindfulness of breathing, but it's mindful to make sure that this is a long breath. And mindful to make sure that this is a long, deep out breath. So we're actually putting the mind on every in breath and putting the mind on every out breath and using the mind to control the breathing, which means that we're actually not uh, training the breath. We're training the mind to control the breath. And so this is why we practice the way that we do is, is that we actually put some skin in the game. We actually are taking long, deep breaths and what that means then is we're actually developing the skill of sati twice on each breath. Rather than waking up one time to recognize the mind has wandered away. And then later we wake up again to see the mind wandering away. Now we're practicing to wake up and take a long deep breath. To wake up and take a long deep out breath. To wake up again and take a long deep in breath to wake up again and take a long, deep out breath. So we're actually practicing sati over and over and over again to break it, to make it a skill. How fast can it be? How strong is it? How frequent does it occur? So by practicing it often, it's going to be more frequently occurring. That's why I would prefer to see the students practice four, five, six times a day for five or 10 minutes, rather than practicing for one long session of two hours. Yeah, I've, I've been doing four 15 minute sessions a day, but would you recommend even shorter than that? Like 
you know, six, 10 minute sessions? Yeah, right. I would in the sense that it's the, how often we practice is um, an important quality to it. So uh, how long the sessions are, are not so important, but moving from four sessions a day to six sessions a day, yes. Yes. Mm. Moving to eight sessions a day, yes. But in fact, there's other things that we can do uh, for anchors. The first anchor that we're using is the anchor of the breath itself. But later we can begin to use other anchors, especially throughout the day. An important anchor is the hands. Start becoming aware of what the hands are doing. That when you're talking and gesturing, know while you're talking that your hands are gesturing, that they are moving. Okay. Uh, in the sutta, it talks about grasping, reaching, stretching, drawing, whatever the arm or the hand is doing, that's something to be mindful of. And the way that we can do that, just like we're being mindful of the breathing by slowing it down, we can become mindful of what the hands are doing by intentionally slowing them down. Intentionally, when you're going to rasp to breathe something, instead of just grabbing it, now we're going to approach it, touch it, feel the, uh, the sensation, grasping a hold of it, and going through all of those various little stages to really pay attention to what our hands are doing. This is done, by the way, in martial arts and in Tai Chi, is to slow these things down and get them exactly correct. And then we can speed them back up. But now when we're speeding them back up, we're doing it with much more alertness, mindfulness, because we've been watching what we were doing. And also by watching the hands throughout the day, keeps us in touch with the here now. Because we cannot watch what the hands are doing last month. We have to watch what they're doing right now. And so coming into this present moment and receiving sensory input, you'd be surprised at how much sensory input the hands are capable of receiving. It's amazing what people can do with their hands. In sports, we call it eye-hand coordination. But we can also think of it in the sense of people can do calligraphy, they can do art, we can do all kinds of things with our hands. But we're not really paying a lot of attention to all of the sensory input that the hands have. It has been said that there are more neurons on the fingertips than most any other place in the body. But in fact, the toes don't have so much sensory input. That's why people can have diabetics and have their legs cut off because they're not paying attention to their feet at all. They don't realize that they've lost the sensation in their feet. And so this is something that you can do in the sense of Anapanasati and step three of Anapanasati is really get to know the body. For instance, uh, notice the position of your feet. Are they both flat on the floor? What touches the floor? What is it? Can you spread your toes? Do you have control over your feet? 
What can you do with them? Okay, experiment with them. Toes are marvelous toys to play with. They're so marvelous, you don't even have to use <laughs> your fingers to play with your toes. You can have the toes play with themselves. <laughs> okay, so this is what we're talking about is coming into the reality of the situation in the present moment, rather than thinking about toes or thinking about something, we're actually experiencing those toes, experiencing the feet, experiencing the touch of the cloth on the legs, experience the touch of the back, whatever is, is going on there. And this is an, um, uh, a part of the practice that in the Goenka method, they become very, very formalized and stylized in the sense of um, what area of the bodies. And so they start at the top of the head, and then they move down the face, and then they move down the body, first on the left arm and then the right arm and all that kind of stuff down in a very formalized way. But we don't have to do it in a formalized way. We can do it in an informal way in the sense of whatever is sensory touch sensations that are there pay attention to that so when you're getting out of the chair pay attention to the body getting out of the chair when you're walking pay attention to the body walking when you're in the shower pay attention to the throbbing of that uh the water droplets as they're on the body it's a flood. It's an, an amazing flood. There's just so much happening all the time. There is so much going on of sensory input that we shut it down. We don't pay attention to it. We would rather think about it than actually experience it. We've gotten used to doing that when we were kids. In fact, one of the things that happens to us as little kids is, is that we don't like sensory input. The kids get hurt. They cry a lot. They don't like the body. It's painful. And some of us don't ever get over that. Some of us get over easy and say, yeah, I can do anything with this body. And we go into sports and music and dance and all kinds of things. But a lot of people would rather shut down and not experience the body because as children, it was a painful experience, this body that we were in. We were taught not to like the body. So now it's time to come back and fall in love with this marvelous thing. I mean, you've got a marvelous toy to play with this human body with even, and it's even got a human mind along with it. Aren't you <laughs> lucky to have such a marvelous toy to play with? And here we are thinking about something that's not even here, not now, just off someplace else. Thinking about things following the rules or whatnot like that, when in fact we've got a marvelous toy to play with. We've got hands. They're marvelous things to play with. We've got arms to play with. We've got um, uh, a body, a whole world to experience. And this breathing thing, that's the marvelous part, is this in and out that keeps us alive, that we live in a sea. We call it air and kind of forget about it, but it's life-giving. And so allowing that life-giving property to come in and experience that life-giving property when it comes in is really marvelous. 
is to really learn to like the breathing, to notice it and get really an artist to sometimes just to sit here and just breathe. No place to go and nothing to do, just to sit and watch the enormous symphony, this stage play. The reality is, is that we're, we are in a marvelous show. And everybody thinks that they're the star of the show, and so they've got to act um, around. You've heard that Shakespeare said that all the world's a stage and everyone is a player, right? To take that analogy a little further, not only are we all players, but everyone's got their own script. And here we are all standing on stage reading the script that was, by the way, given to us when we were a child. And we're not really paying attention to much about what's going on on stage because we're too busy rehearsing our part, our script. If we would wake up, we can recognize what a symphony is going on around us. What a marvelous thing is going on, this reality that we can call a show. And all we have to do is just to show, enjoy the show. Which means enjoy our sensory input. Enjoy the body, enjoy the hands, enjoy the toes, enjoy what the eyes can bring in and see. And we don't have to process it or make much sense out of it. Just enjoy it. It's almost like um, oh, some kind of uh, shows or movies are like a murder mystery. And the whole thing is to set up is can the audience figure out who the murderer is before the murderer is exposed on stage? Well, guess what? Life is not a murder mystery. It's a comedy. <laughs> we don't have to figure it out. We just enjoy the joke. <laughs> <laughs> and so this is what we need to see is, is that we don't have to figure things out. We don't have to see the things follow the rules so that we can use logic and convention to figure things out. All we need to do is just enjoy it. To be nurturing to yourself, this is okay. Everything is all right. No place to go, nothing to do. Just enjoy the show. And spending 10 minutes, six times a day doing this will change one's life. Because there will be connections between those sessions. So you begin to wake up more and more often and be in the here now more and more often throughout the day. Yeah, I've already had a huge impact on me already, so. Well, congratulations and use that as, see, I told you this stuff works. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely have my, my motivation and my uh, kind of confidence in the practice is like increases every day, so. That's marvelous. But it's also very characteristic. It works like that. The Dhamma is good stuff. It works. And that when we recognize that, then we become even more enthusiastic about it. Mm -hmm. That this stuff really works. This is really worth doing. That I can enjoy this moment. 
I can pay attention to what's going on. I don't have to go around judging it to pick up something and say, oh, that's bad. Pick up something else. Oh, that's no good. Picking up something else. Oh, that's terrible. And we do that our whole lives. We just go around picking up stuff and judging it. And one of the things that we're most critical of is ourselves. And you don't have to do that anymore. You're okay. You've already got your own stamp of approval. Enjoy it. Or as the Zen say, you're already enlightened. You don't have to strive for anything anymore. You've already got it. Here it is. Now, that is just so opposite to where we've been taught our whole lives, isn't it? Our whole lives, we've been taught to strive, to get. You ain't got it yet. You ain't got it yet. You ain't got it yet. Keep working. Keep struggling. It's all about delayed gratification. Here, we're learning it instant gratification. Gratify yourself right now. That is not dangerous. <laughs> so I'm yeah, really say, uh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say yeah, it's a it's a really very wonderful reminder for me because I've always been very goal and like rule oriented my whole life and uh and so I'm I know very you're grateful. a computer scientist. We've got special <laughs> problems. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's why I'm so, so grateful for you uh, sharing your practice with me. And it makes really makes all the difference for me. So very, very much cherish our, uh, our, our sessions together. Yes, we need friends. That's what Definitely. this is, drama friendship, so that we can share this stuff. So congratulations oh, yeah. for getting it. Congratulations. <laughs> that's really marvelous. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I'm starting to, uh, I just messaged Keyshawn and I'm trying to get together with more of the, the guys and the, and the Sangha as well. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to building more of a, a, a Sangha. Yes, that's what we need. We need friends. That's about the only thing that we need. Well, Tyler, this has been a really great talk. I've really enjoyed our time together. I hope that uh, this has been some value to you so that we give you inspiration and another boost to go back and sit down and do nothing and enjoy the heck out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm ready. I'm pumped up. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we'll see you later then. All right. I'll see you later. Bye. Okay. All righty. Bye-bye.